Good morning, church family. It's my great joy to be here with you guys and open the word again. Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to our text. We'll be in the book of Ephesians, examining chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. Ephesians chapter 1, 1 to 14. It reads, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the riches of your amazing Grace, we thank you for the blood of the Lamb that was shed on our behalf. We thank you for the spiritual blessings that have been poured out all because of Christ. And that you have given us the Holy Spirit to teach us, to keep us, to instruct us, to seal us for the day of glory. And I pray that this morning... You would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and minds to understand and perceive the glory of your word in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let's begin to examine our text. Ephesians 1, beginning with verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. I love this. Paul didn't just say, I'm an, I'm an apostle. Paul, an apostle. He didn't leave his, his introduction there, his greeting there. But he recognizes the very reason why he's an apostle. He's an apostle because of the will of God. He's an apostle 
through Christ Jesus and for Christ Jesus because of the will of God. It was God's will when brother Saul was on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians to shine a mighty light down upon him, knock him off of his horse, and say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In which Saul responds, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. By the sovereign grace of God, by the very will of God, Paul stood an apostle. It wasn't anything that Paul fabricated. It wasn't anything that Paul came up with. It wasn't anything that Paul desired. He was on the road to persecute the very people who called upon the name of the Lord. But by God's amazing grace, by God's sovereign hand, Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And so he wants the Ephesians to know that I am Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. God was sovereign in this. And this language is all throughout Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle by the will of God. God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He predestined us for his glory. That's all over. Verse even 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Paul wanted the Ephesians to know who he was. A man sent of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Well, now that he got out of the way who he is and why he is what he is, he goes on to address those who he's writing to. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. He wasn't just writing to a general crowd or a a general church congregation. He was writing specifically to the saints who were faithful in Christ Jesus. So when he's writing to the saints in Ephesus, he's writing to the faithful. Now, what does that word faithful mean? It doesn't mean somebody more sanctified than another, someone seemingly more religious. Paul was writing to those who were full of faith in Christ In the atoning work of Christ. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. And then this is yours. Paul's signature in all of his writing. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the faithful are recipients of. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I love how Ephesians starts off. After the introduction, Paul introduces himself. It's me, Paul, writing to you, the Ephesians. He starts off blessing God. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Well, if anybody understood the grace of God and the heavenly blessings, it was Paul. The persecutor of the church, the insolent opponent, the foremost of sinners. And that's why Paul can say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Starting off with a blessing. Understanding all that God has done for him. Coming after a persecutor? What? One who was an opponent of the church? One who fought against Christ? 
and his church receiving this grace. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, Paul understood the spiritual blessings. Spiritual blessings are an amazing thing. But fortunately, I think as a church, or the modern evangelical world as a whole, has a misconception as to what spiritual blessings are. I think oftentimes the church mixes up spiritual blessings with material blessings. But the scripture says that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, not earthly places. And unfortunately, we see this prosperity gospel that's really popular among many of the churches today. Where they look to things as a blessing. They think in order to be blessed and highly favored of the Lord, I need to have a house with the minimum square footage of 5,000. I need to have a car with at least a Mercedes or a Lexus logo on it. I need people to know me. I need people to like me. That's what it is to be blessed, to have an abundant bank account. The problem with that theology is that's the very thing that Satan promises those who will follow him. The very thing he even tempted our Lord Jesus Christ with. Bow down and worship me and I will make all these things yours. There needs to be a very careful distinction made. When it comes to blessings, spiritual blessings, understanding what they are. Spiritual blessings are much more glorious than earthly blessings. Spiritual blessings are what Paul had in mind here. Now, what are some spiritual blessings? I'm going to give you four spiritual blessings that you can wrap your mind around this morning. These are probably the most fundamental foundational blessings that God has blessed us with. The first blessing being... Christ Jesus and him crucified. The greatest of all spiritual transactions, Christ Jesus and him crucified. The idea of holy Jesus coming to the earth, being perfect and sinless, dying for wretched, vile, wicked sinners is almost unfathomable. To think that Christ would do this for us. He was stricken, smitten, afflicted. Men hid their faces from him. Men gnashed their teeth at him like like ravening wolves, like dogs. They wanted to crush him. They wanted to kill him. They rejected him. They despised him. Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating great drops of blood and despair and deep anguish of soul on our behalf, going to the cross, Crucified for sinners. Put in the tomb and rose on the third day for the forgiveness of our sins. The greatest spiritual blessing, Christ. And it is through him and through him alone that we have access to all the spiritual blessings. The second spiritual blessing is the church. And I'm not talking about an individual building. I'm talking about The group of saints, the collection of all the saints all around the world. God has blessed the church with the church, with each other. People who will love each other, care for one another, make each other meals, visit one another. The orphans, the widows, those in chains. That we would come alongside of each other and pray for one another. Love one another in our darkest hours and in our best hours. Laugh with each other, cry with each other, grow with each other. 
God has given us the spiritual blessing of the church. Then, God goes as far as to bless us with the ability to speak to him in prayer. The ability to have prayer answered. And what a wonderful thing that he didn't just give us his son and give us access into the kingdom of God and deliver us from sin. But he also allows us to commune with him. To take our deepest pains and sorrows to him in the private quarters of our homes or in the strolls through the woods. He hears us and he has made it so. He's made it so we can communicate with him. Direct access through Christ to the Almighty, to the very throne of grace, where we come and we pour out our heart to him day after day. We pour out our praise to him day after day. We seek him and petition, petition him for needs, whether those needs be material or spiritual or emotional, whether it's praying for a, a lost loved one or a friend. God has blessed us with the ability, the spiritual blessing of prayer. Then finally, the last one that I'm going to mention <clears throat> is the spiritual blessing of heaven's eternal glory. If it wasn't enough to give us all these things because of the very first blessing, we get to receive this blessing. Christ, the Lamb, the lamp of heaven, God the Father and God the Son, shining, radiant, glorious, beautiful light, waiting to receive the redeemed unto himself, the place where he will wipe away every tear from your eyes, the place where there is no more pain, no more sorrow, no more anguish, no more sin, no more death, no more scorching heat, nothing that can hurt, we get to experience the Lord and enjoy him forever as we glorify him in his presence. A light that's so magnificent, so bright, that the ungodly who stained with even just one sin outside of Christ could not approach it without being burnt up. We get to bask in that glory eternally through the redeeming blood of Christ. That's what God has done for us through Christ. It's amazing. It's such a, a wonderful thing to think about. To, to, to be able to approach God. To worship Him forever. And these are just some of the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. And we have them, verse 4, because He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Now some suggest that God looked down the span of time and saw those who would choose Him. And so he chose them back and sealed them and prepared them for heaven. But that's not quite how it works. We see through the text and context. It wasn't anything good or bad that we've ever done. God redeemed those whom he foreknew. Look, verse 4, as I said, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. God knew all the work that needed to be done before he ever said, let there be, let there be, let there be, and it was very good. He knew every single thing. Nothing surprises God. 
He has prepared us beforehand for spiritual blessings, for amazing grace. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Yes, to bless us. Yes, to give on to us. Yes, to express his love and grace and mercy towards us. But also that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, what does that mean? That we should be holy and blameless before him. Well, that's twofold. The first part of that would be that God has redeemed us. So we ought to be holy. We ought to live holy. We ought to forsake the former ways of our life, the sinful ways, and look to Christ, look to the cross. When we read in the gospel, the Sermon on the Mount, and, and, and we see all that Jesus had admonished and commanded, that we should eat that up and desire to live as Christ has commanded us to live. We ought to be ones who hunger and thirst after righteousness, strive after holiness. As we read in Ephesians chapter 6, wrestling against sin, wrestling against the principalities and the powers, not giving in to them, not walking with them as slaves to them as in our former ways of ignorance, but as bondservants of Christ, as slaves of Christ, willing slaves of Christ. To love him, to honor him, to bear the fruit of his Holy Spirit. God has called us to be holy. He set us aside to be holy and blameless before him. Now, with that being said, none of us are perfect, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's true before we came to Christ. It's also true after. We sin. We're not perfect. And though we hunger and thirst after righteousness, which is a a sign of being born again, we also need Christ to atone for us always. And that happened once and for all. But we are made righteous, truly, holy, and fully through Christ and Christ alone. So yes, God has called us to be holy and blameless before him in our conduct. But we are truly holy and blameless before him in Christ. And that needs to be understood lest you fall into a workspace mentality. Works are good, but works must be viewed through the lens of grace and understanding what God had saved us from. God chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. And I love where this is going because we're going to transition into verse 5. There's a real gem in verse 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So it's not just that he called us. It's not just that he saved us. It's not just that he redeemed us. He adopted us in this marvelous adoption. Now, there are families in the church that have adopted And that is a a wonderful, amazing thing. I think that is something that should absolutely be done. And and there are certain families that they're gifted in doing that. And and I just, I commend them for that. And families that adopt try their very best to disprove that old saying, that blood is thicker than water. And they try to treat the children all alike. And they try to love and provide and care just as if they were their own. But this is a different type of adoption. 
We are here truly, literally made God's own. It's as if his blood is coursing through our veins, through Christ, his only begotten son that died for us so that we might be adopted sons and daughters into the kingdom of God to enjoy his glorious grace, to enjoy all that he has laid before us, to enjoy his spiritual blessings, the blood of Christ that atones for sin, the church, prayer, and heavenly glory. Eternal heavenly glory. This adoption is so marvelous that if you just stop and just ponder it, say la. Stop and ponder it for a minute. It ought to bring you to tears. He's done so much for wicked, ungodly, unrighteous sinners. And this is why Paul says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's adopted us as as his own children, his very own. He smiles upon us. He loves us like a nurturing father taking you into his bosom. And oftentimes we we don't view God like that. We feel like he's going to come down on us with a hard hammer. And sometimes he chastises us good. But know that it's because he loves. He chastens those who are legitimate children. He chastens those whom he loves. This is God's amazing grace. His amazing love. For sinners like us. He's adopted us. Through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will. And why does he do it? Verse 6. To the praise of Of his glorious grace. He's adopted us into his kingdom. Given us grace. Given us love. Given us mercy. To the praise of his glorious grace. That we might praise him. And bring praise and honor to his name. Because of his glorious grace. With which he has blessed us in the beloved. That is Jesus Christ. How it says here. In him. That is Christ. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And here's my sermon title, According to the Riches of His Grace. In Christ, we have redemption. What is redemption? I just want to draw a little picture in your mind of what redemption is. Redemption is you murdered a man and you're standing before a righteous judge. And I know you're thinking, I've never murdered a man. Well, I think we all have. If we ever had anger or hatred towards a brother, we've all committed murder in our heart. So you're standing before a righteous judge, a murderer, and it just so happens the person you murdered is the judge's son. And he looks at you and he says, you are guilty as charged. I am sentencing you to death. I will put you into the executioner's hands swiftly. And comes down the gavel. You're thrown in a prison cell, the door is shut, your destiny is sealed. Then out of nowhere, somebody comes and opens your prison cell door and says, get your clothes and pack your things, you're coming with me, I'm releasing you from prison, and I am going to nullify the executioner's orders. That's redemption. We've all, as I stated, sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody outside of Jesus Christ stands under the powerful condemnation of God. 
Everybody outside of Christ is an object of God's wrath. And either you'll come to the place where your trust is in Christ and that wrath is absorbed on the cross, or you will suffer the wrath of God on your own. But right here, through Christ, faith in him, we have redemption. It's easy to see, right? Christ redeemed us. If we would believe in him, look to him, trust in him, the gavel doesn't come down on us. We're set free. We're liberated from the wages due our name, which is death. He sets us free. And how does he do it? Through his blood. Verse 7 says, in him we have redemption through his blood. Without the shedding of blood, Hebrews 9 says, there is no forgiveness of sin. The blood is a very special thing. It's very important. It's very foundational. If Christ's blood wasn't shed, if he didn't die, there is no redemption. We see in the Old Testament the picture of animal sacrifices that couldn't truly atone for sin. They had to be made continually. Hebrews 9 talks about that as well. Indeed, under the law, almost everything was sprinkled with blood. Blood is what covered the blood of bulls and goats and rams, but it never truly atoned. It never truly took away sin, but Christ came and dealt with sin once for all with his own blood. The blood of a perfect, spotless, sinless lamb. In him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. It's it's such an amazing grace as we sung. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That song brought me to tears this morning. Just thinking about the message, I had asked them to play that, but for some reason this morning it hit me in a different way. I really thought about it. Christ redeemed me through his blood. He saved a wretch like me. He pulled me out of darkness. He pulled me out of sin. And the the price was so high. It was his blood. The blood of an innocent one. Not the blood of a criminal. Not the blood of somebody who should be shed for their sin. The blood of an innocent one. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. So according to God's grace, he has lavished upon us wisdom and insight. He has given us understanding. Now, what kind of understanding might this be? Understanding of who Christ is, what Christ has done. It takes understanding to receive and believe the gospel. Not everybody can comprehend the gospel. The scriptures tell us that. That to the Jews, they, they seek signs and it's a stumbling block. And, and to the Greeks, it's, it, it's just folly and, and, and they seek wisdom. 
It takes God's hand to lift the veil off your eyes. It takes wisdom and insight by the grace of God for you to see and comprehend and understand the simplicity of the gospel. You need to have eyes to see. You have to have ears to hear and you have to have a heart to understand. And that comes by the grace of God. That's that's where the gift of faith starts. That's how God calls people onto himself. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, even making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So what's the mystery of his will? Verse 10, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And this this ties into Ephesians chapter 3. Paul talks about the the mystery of the gospel. And the mystery of the gospel is that this salvation isn't just to the Jews. This salvation is also to the Gentiles. And God is going to unite all things in him. People from every tribe, tongue, language. He's going to unite all people. The gospel's for all. It started with the Jews, but it went to the Gentiles, as we see in Acts chapter 10. Right? Peter goes and he's talking to Cornelius. He shares the gospel. The Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles, and that's the sign that even to the Gentiles has this covenant of grace come. And they have access now to the same Father that we do, the same adoption that we do. Or we have the same, rather, that they do. According to the riches of His grace, according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So God's plan is to unite all things, all people, and ultimately, as we're going to see, to the praise of his glory. In him we have obtained an inheritance in Christ, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Now, most likely what Paul is talking about here when he says, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory, he's most likely talking about the fact that the message came to the Jews first. The believing Jews, then the apostles were sent out, so that we who are the first in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. These are the ones who are sharing the the glory of God, sharing the gospel of our salvation, speaking the gospel truth that we might believe. So that we who are the first to open Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Then verse 13, also to the Gentiles. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. What an amazing thing. God didn't just extend his grace and mercy to one people group, but all people groups. To all people Every walk of life, every skin shade, every language, he has expressed the riches of his grace. Not only does he do this, but he seals us. He seals us with the promised Holy Spirit. And that that Holy Spirit, verse 14 says, is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit guarantees us that we are bound for heaven. 
Now a question may then arise, well, how can I be sure that I have the Holy Spirit? Going back to verse 1, are you faithful? In other words, do you exercise faith in Christ? And does your profession match your life? Will somebody look at you and say, I can tell the Spirit is in you. Another believer, I can tell the Spirit is in you because I see the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Would others look at you and say, you know what, you're faithful. Every time there's a calamity in your life, it's Jesus. Or, or when I see you, you're always talking about Jesus. Or you're always wanting to share the gospel. These are ways that we could tell if we have faith in our life. And then if we know that we have faith in our life, we can be assured that we have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And we are bound for heaven where Christ is. And where Christ is there, I want to be also. I hope you as well. But that's how we can know. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Now, I want to I draw a parallel here because I think this is awesome. Verse 6 talks about the praise of his glorious grace. We, we were saved to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 12, so that we who are the first hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, after talking about then going to the Gentiles, the gospel of our salvation, we believed we were sealed to the praise of his glory. God saves all people to the praise of his glory. He sealed you with his Holy Spirit to the praise of his glory. He redeemed you for good works to the praise of his glory. You are sitting here right now in this room to the praise of his glory. Not because it's convenient, not because we get a sense of religion, but we are here united to the praise of his glory. So then the question is, do you know Christ? Do you know Christ? Have you called upon his name? Have you trusted in the blood of the lamb for your salvation? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the perfect spotless lamb who was slain 2,000 years ago on Calvary's cross? His blood was shed. He was placed in the tomb and on the third day he rose. That if you would believe it and repent of your sin, you'd be forgiven, sealed, and glory bound. I pray that everyone in this room would believe that gospel. We had gone through Ephesians chapter 6, looking at spiritual armor, putting on Christ, putting on the whole armor of God. Now here in chapter 1, we see that there's spiritual blessings, there's this glorious adoption, these wonderful things in Christ. But if you don't know Christ, none of this applies to you. And I would pray that if you are here this morning and you don't know Christ is your Savior, that you would put your trust in Him fully right now. Don't leave the way that you came in. Leave redeemed. And God would bid you be saved to the praise of my glory. That you might be a partaker of my Holy Spirit. And a partaker of the riches of His grace. Let's pray.
Father, your word is heavy. Your word is powerful. It's sharp. It cuts deep. And this morning we have looked into the riches of your grace and love and kindness. And maybe there's a different tone in the atmosphere today, Lord. And I pray that that there would be a response to your grace, to your love, your kindness, your gentleness. For it is better to be called in the spirit of grace and gentleness than to have to be humbled and crushed. May we all see our need for you now. Well, your voice is gentle. Then have to come under the power of your rod to break us. May we not found as Saul was to be kicking against the goads. But may we soften our hearts and have hearts of flesh and not hearts of stone. Do a mighty work in Rock Valley Bible Church and all the churches around the world, Lord. I pray that this day salvation would come to many souls. And for those whose salvation has already come, great rejoicing. Bless us as we depart. And may we enjoy our fellowship with one another, never taking it for granted. In Jesus' name, amen.